you have your Bible, please turn to Revelation chapter 3. So this morning, as we continue with our series in the book of Revelation, uh, we are going to see quite simply a small church with a big opportunity. A small church with a big opportunity. Um, If you know me at all, I'm willing to ask for a deal. I'm willing to go the extra mile and ask for things or ask, ask for favors or whatever. Well, when I got a little postcard in the mail a few weeks ago that said Together for the Gospel was going to be here, that comes about every couple years. This is the last year for it. As you know, in the past, we have had one of the main speakers come speak at Redeemer. Uh, my former professor, Ligon Duncan. And it's always a privilege, always a great thing. But I also saw on there that someone new was coming this year. Perhaps my, one of my favorite theologian pastor preachers that I've ever, that in this life, Sinclair Ferguson. Well, when I saw that, I threw out an email to Ligon Duncan. And I kind of said, hey, we'd love to have you preach, but if Sinclair is available, uh, we would really love him to preach. And I was like, don't worry, Ligon, I get that all the time. Just kidding. And Lord willing, Lord willing, Sinclair Ferguson will be preaching here Easter Sunday. So I'm pretty excited about that. Sinclair Ferguson, a pretty big name, and I don't like to say it like that because he would never say it like that or want that, but it's a big opportunity for a small church, and I think it's awesome. And that's what we see here in Revelation chapter 3. We see a big open door, a big opportunity for a small church. Hear the word of God this morning. Verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear Let him hear what the Spirit says 
to the churches. Let me pray for us. God, thank you again for this morning, the first day of the week that we get to gather. And for those who cannot be here in person, that they could even participate virtually with us this morning. We pray that your spirit would participate with us this morning through your word being read and proclaimed, that you would indeed, through your Spirit, do more than we even would ask, O God, this morning. Open our ears and open our eyes. If we are asleep, if we are tired, if we are numb, if this message has lost its luster, wake us up. This morning, wake us up as we behold Christ and His church. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So I've told you before that uh, my family and I really, uh, it was just so, it was so hard on us, such a great cost to do this. We did a mission summer in Scotland near the Isle of Skye. It was so, so hard, I tell you. But while we were there, one of the things that we did, that the local churches all did in this small village, a lot of tourists would come through this village. Every Friday at lunch, they had what was called the Open Door Cafe. Basically, the churches would provide all the food. You could eat for free, or you could pay a little or pay what you wanted, but it was an Open Door Cafe. Anyone could come in and eat. This morning as we look at this text, what I want us to see with this this big opportunity for this small church are three wide open doors. The first door that we are going to see is a door that is open vertically, open with God. The second door that we're going to see is one that is open horizontally. It is an opportunity for ministry. And the last door is a door that is open forever, eternally. So let's start this morning with the open door with God. Jesus is saying to this church and to all His churches forever that if you are in Christ, you have an open door with God that no one can shut. That's what He's saying in this first point. Look at verse 7. Again, John does what he's done in all of these letters. He reaches back to chapter 1 and this glorious image that we have of Jesus as the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. Listen to how he says it here. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David. Now what he's doing here, he's actually added holy and true. He's he's sort of describing what he saw when he saw Jesus and all of his holiness. And he saw how true this was. But one other thing to note here as we talk about this description of Jesus just for a second. If you'll remember in the beginning of this series, we said that John harkens back to the Old Testament Over 500 allusions to the Old Testament. Not one direct quotation. In other words, it was so in his system and in his soul that it bled out of him. And when he says something like Jesus, the Holy One, an Old Testament scholar might go, or would immediately think, 
holy God. What book of the Bible would come up? You might think Leviticus, but, but you would also think Isaiah. Because Isaiah has these glorious pictures of God and all of his holiness. And what John is saying is, this Jesus whom you saw, this Son of Man, this Son of God, is God. He is the one who was a man in human flesh. And he is the one that Isaiah wrote about who is God. And he is the one, look further at verse 7, who has the key of David. Well, what is he talking about there? If you go back to chapter 1, he doesn't actually use the phrase the key of David. He uses the phrase the key of death and Hades. In other words, that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection coming out on the other side of death and conquering death as a first fruit for us, he is the one that has the right to hold the key to say, I can get you through death to the other side. So that's part of what he is saying. But again, if you go back to Isaiah 22, you can read this, but there was an authoritative figure there, and I can't pronounce his name, so I'm not going to try. But basically, God says this to him, I am going to put the key of David on your shoulders. You are now the governing authority for my people. So in other words, what John is doing is he's combining sort of these, these illusions, these images to say that this Jesus who is holy and true is the one who has the governing authority over life and death on his shoulders. Chapter 4, verse 1, we're going to see a door standing open in heaven. And what he says here at the end of verse 7, listen to how he says it. He has the key of David... And he opens doors, and once he opens them, no one can shut them. Once he closes them, no one can open them. Now we get that second image, right? A closed door, someone locks it, and without the key, you can't get in. That happened to me. I knew this was going to happen. I didn't need this illustration, but one of my actuators in my car went out, and, and one of my doors won't open. And so you have to go inside, and you have to kind of force it. But it's like you can't open it. But listen to what he says here also. Have you ever seen a door that is wide open and locked? You see the image? He's saying Jesus has the key, the governing authority through his life, death, and resurrection to open this door between you and God and for you to walk through it and continue to walk through it as you grow as a Christian because you don't just get through the door and forget about the door. But you continue to rely on Jesus as the key. Jesus is the key and Jesus holds the key so that you and I can have free, bold confidence to stand before God as unholy creatures in Christ. Because Christ is the key to God. You may wonder how it is that I got connected with Ligon Duncan and got connected with Sinclair Ferguson, or maybe you don't. But I'm going to tell you how. When I was in seminary, I would do some youth retreats and youth things for the church that Ligon Duncan actually went to. 
And I just had a gut feeling that maybe one day I could stay connected to Ligon Duncan and ask him to come preach at my church. I really had that premonition. And I learned at that point that the key to getting to Ligon Duncan was a lady named Jan Hyde. Jan Hyde has been Ligon's administrator for years. So when I say I contacted Ligon Duncan to get Sinclair Ferguson, I really didn't. I contacted Jan Hyde. And Jan Hyde emailed me back and said, you're in. Because Jan Hyde is the key. Now, I don't mean to exalt people and all of that. That's not what I'm trying to do with this. But what I'm trying to say with this is you are not the key. It's who you know. You are not the key. And, and when you start looking at yourself and you're like, I've got to keep this door open in this relationship with God, or I've got to keep it closed, or I'm the one that opens and shuts it, I'm the authority, I'm the governing person of that, you lose the gospel. And what this also means is, you're wondering why I'm holding my phone, because I'm getting to something here. But what this also means is this. If Jesus is the key, and it's about His merit, His obedience, His life, His death, then it's not about yours, then that means anyone can go through that door, right? Anyone can go through that door. Listen to this email from the ladies' Bible study, the book study on the women in Jesus' genealogy. The author writes this, I should have warned, spoiler alert, when beginning Rahab's story with her inclusion in Matthew's genealogy, who would have guessed a former prostitute would play so great a role in God's kingdom? It's shocking someone who broke the seventh commandment for a living married into the royal tribe of Judah and became a mother to the Messiah. Many women in our classrooms, offices, and families are like Rahab. They have swapped a sinful past to become part of God's family. However, women who have turned from their sexual sins can have a hard time fitting into churches today. They may hide their history of abortions on Sanctity of Life Sunday, find it awkward to introduce their illegitimate children at vacation Bible school, be too afraid to confess same-sex attraction to a Bible study friend, or avoid women in church who know about their wild high school years. But Jesus does not steer clear from women like this. Listen to this. He talked to the woman with a dicey history at the well. He welcomed the touch of the sinful woman washing his feet. He spoke for the woman caught in adultery. He spoke for the woman caught in adultery. Did you hear that? Jesus brought these women into his story just like God included Rahab in his redemptive story centuries earlier. If you, like Rahab, have embraced a new life in Christ, but have a history of looking to sex for your security or identity, I hope you feel included too. That's a beautiful quote. Jesus is the key to the open door with God. Secondly, when you know that, when you understand that, when that 
stays in your heart, you have an open door for ministry. You realize that on the, si- on the other side of the key, when you go through that narrow door of Jesus, on the other side, it's broad. Because you realize, if I can get in, if she can get in, if he can get in, then anyone can come in. And God can reach any, anybody. And so your mind and your heart, they enlarge in toward opportunities for ministry. Look at verses 8 through 10. I know your works. Behold, and here's a different usage of that same phrase. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Few observations about this verse. The open door here is different from the open door in verse 7. The New Testament, and especially Paul, uses this phrase, an open door, to mean an opportunity for ministry. You might think of Acts 16. Hey, there's an open door to those people over there. In Colossians, he talks about an open door to ministry. 1 Corinthians 16, many passages in the New Testament. In other words, he's saying, you have this open door with God, and one of the things that it should do is swell your heart to the opportunities around you to minister the gospel that has been ministered to you. And yet there's a challenge, isn't it? What's the challenge? Look again at verse 8. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Most commentators point out that the church in Philadelphia was small. It was considered weak. It did not have power. It did not have a lot of authority or influence in the culture, even the church world. And if you notice, just providentially, it is stuck between Sardis that Murray talked about last week that outwardly looked big and exciting. Right? Everybody thinks that church is alive. And then the next church is Laodicea that is loaded financially. They can afford all sorts of missionaries in their budget, do all sorts of ministry, do all sorts of creative things because they have all of this and right squeezed in the middle of this little church in Philadelphia. Right? This is not a diatribe on size, by the way. God uses all sorts of churches. But when this small, weak church, you can feel it, right? especially when those who are influential and powerful talk a lot. Look at what he says next. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. What's going on here is there were Jewish people still devoted to the synagogue in this city. And it seems like there were lots of them, and you had a tiny Gentile congregation there in Philadelphia trying to be faithful to the Messiah. And you've got these people here here who are more the dominant, powerful voice saying, you're not the real people of God, we are. You're not identified with God, we are. And they were excluding them 
and they were letting them know about it verbally. In other words, they were saying things. And you know how this goes. Even if it's not true, when you are accused of something or someone says to you something that is a lie, Jesus says, it can feel true because sticks and stones do break our bones. It may have gone something like this. We are the real people of God. We are the children of Abraham. We have the promises. We baptize infants, whatever. We have the theology. We've kept the faith. We are the insiders. We are the holy people of God still waiting on the true Messiah that's going to conquer everybody. Y'all are bowing down to that weak Messiah that got crucified. And then there's this myth and fable about him being resurrected. Did you see him? Or it might just be very, very religious people who outwardly have the commandments and look at people who have Christ, who are free in Christ, and enjoy that freedom and make accusations because they're not doing things that the people with hoops want them to do. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones on this. He says, concerning Christians who enjoy their freedom in Christ and don't walk around with the spirit of bondage, he said this, this free grace of God is always exposed to the charge of antinomianism. That means people charging you that, oh, you say you're a Christian, but you don't care about the law. You don't care about the commandments. You don't care about the Bible. You don't care about these things that we care about. Listen to what Jones says. If you do not hear people say things like that sometimes, if you are not misunderstood and slanderously reported from the standpoint of antinomianism, it is because you do not believe the gospel truly and you do not preach it truly. He says if you believe, this is Martin Lloyd-Jones saying, if you believe the gospel Religious people are going to give you a hard time. They're going to exclude you based on their doors. And what that can do is if you're small and weak and don't have much influence, you can feel really excluded and left out. I mean, just think about it. If you hear that there's a party or some get-together and you didn't get invited, just how that feels. And what John says is, you know what? I know that's hard. I know your works. I know you're standing firm. I know what's going on with those people and the pressure it puts on you. And right in the midst of that, listen to what he says. Hey, small church, you've got a big opportunity. He says, I put an open door for you and your smallness and your weakness and your lack of this and your lack of that can't stop it. No one can shut this door. Well, what was that opportunity? There are two options here. Some commentators say this, that Philadelphia, because of its location, was a very strategic place. It was right smack dab in the middle of where a bunch of trade routes went east. In other words, as my buddy said this, God is actively filling heaven and earth 
or sorry, heaven with men and women from every race, tribe, tongue, and people group. Philadelphia had an open door because of its strategic location. It was a highway from Europe to the east. It was a launch pad. It was a beachhead for the gospel. In other words, what he was saying, I know you feel small, and I know you want to go into a fortress, and I, want you, I know you want to get behind your walls and just kind of hide. He says, that's not what I want. You're in a strategic place, this open door for the gospel to go into Asia and reach people from every tribe, nation, and language. Don't stay huddled in a corner. It would be like God saying to us right now, Redeemer, you have a great opportunity. Spaghetti Junction's right there. And it goes in every direction. Dream and pray about opportunities that God gives us to plant churches or to minister with a, a, a preschool and a ministry in this neighborhood. Dream and pray and look for those open doors. But secondly, and I lean in this direction, but you have to look close at verse 9. The opportunity may simply to be to minister to your enemies that exclude you. Look at verse 9 again. This is a strange passage, I admit. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, these people that lie and say they're the real people of God, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. If you just took the first part of that, and you said, well, okay, they're going to come and bow down before the small church's feet, you might think, okay, well, we talked earlier about vindication, that we're going to, that the people of God are going to judge the earth one day, going to judge people that have judged them. That could be what's going on, but I don't think that's what's going on. The word for bow down is actually worship. And if the second phrase weren't there, that could get real confusing because he's saying they're going to worship them. That's not what he's saying. Think about it like this. They are going to come and humble themselves. And they are going to worship the true God because they have witnessed my love for you. You see that? In other words, they have watched the way that you have responded to them and you didn't respond like they respond, excluding. You actually included them and reached out to them. In other words, those persecuting and excluding you will learn about my love for you, my bride. They will learn that I have poured out my love upon you and that door is so wide open that no one can shut it. And they will go, man, those people have something that we long to have. Think about how many of you became Christians in this church. You witnessed Christians often in the way they dealt with adversity or suffering. And you said, those people, are they're, they're, they're shaking some, but they're not shaking like everyone else. They have the love of God poured into their hearts. Let me try to illustrate it like this. And I told my wife this week, this illustration is half helpful. But I'm going I'm to tease it out a little bit. 
My friend Nathan tells this story about way back in the day, he was at an amusement park in Memphis, Tennessee called Liberty Land. You probably never heard of it. It was an itty-bitty amusement park. But he was taking a break from all the rides, and he was drinking a Coke, and he saw this group of middle school kids kind of jeering at something and laughing and making fun. They were having a good time jeering at something. And he couldn't really see what was going on, so he got up and he turned around the corner and he saw this little girl and her face was very deformed. And he realized they are laughing at her. And he's actually a minister and he said, the first thing I want to do is go wipe them all out. Until I saw this. Her dad walked up to her and with a huge smile on his face, looked at her lovingly and her eyes brightened up, and she smiled, and he took her by the arms in the midst of this amusement park with jeering kids and looking at her in the eye. I'm going to get dizzy and fall here. And her eyes were so fixed on her daddy and his love for her that she no longer heard those voices. Now, the story would be perfect if one of those kids would have walked away and went, I want love like that, and I bet they did. I bet they did. Do you realize the open door and the opportunity that you have with people that exclude you, especially religious people? Finally, open door with God, open door for ministry, and an open door eternally. Look at verse 12. Remember how he sort of brackets all the time? He's like, hey, here's Jesus. I want you to see Jesus. This is going to get you through a hard day. You know? And here are the promises. I want you to look back to chapter 1. Now I want you to look forward to chapter 21 and chapter 22 where the new heavens and the new earth. And listen to what he says. He says three things. He says this about this small, weak, uninfluential church. The one who hangs in there, the one who conquers, the one who just crosses the finish line, even falls over the finish line, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar in the people of God. A pillar in the temple of God. The Bible study that I quoted earlier, she goes in there to say that women in one of the Psalms were said to be put in the temple as pillars to bring strength and security to the people of God. I know that's how it works in my family. And God is saying about His church that if you're in Christ, you hang in there, you keep keeping on, you're going to be a pillar. You're going to bring security and stability because you have security and stability. Listen to how Jesus says it. If you are in God's hands, it's because God put you there. All the Father gives me will come to me. And once they are in my hands, John says that no one can pluck you from God's hand. It is secure. The door is always open. It's eternally opened. And secondly, he says, you're never going to be kicked out. You see what it says? You'll never have to go out of this. Most commentators point out that the city of 
Philadelphia was known for having earthquakes and tremors, so much so that the people would leave the city and they move out to the suburbs because they didn't want things to collapse on them. And he's saying, you're going to be in a place with me forever that you never have to fear destruction. You don't have to live in a culture of fear anymore. You don't have to wonder if food is going to be there tomorrow or what's going to happen with the next thing or the next political move or the, this nation and that nation. That's never going to be the case anymore. It's how we're going to sing in a minute that God's kingdom never shakes. And yet you're like, Fritz, well, you know, sometimes I shake. You know what he says back up a little bit in verse 11? He says, I'm coming soon, and people are confused about that one. But he basically says this. He, he says, I'm going to withhold this next suffering from you. And commentators debate again, they're not going to get any of the suffering, or they're going to get that suffering. But I think what he's saying is this. Even if the suffering comes, it's just like Paul says, that even though outwardly you may be shaken and wasting away, what often happens to a Christian internally? You get more secure, more stable in what? The love of God in Christ. Because all of those things let you down. The reason God shakes them is so you quit holding on to them. And you cling to Christ so that in your inner being, you are strengthened. And finally, he says this. You're going to be secure pillar in the temple. You're never going to be kicked out. And you're going to have a new name. He says it in several different ways, but think about it this way. The Bible is big about names. When we name a child, I named my child Newton. I named him after John Newton. But I did not name him thinking, I want you to grow up and be destined for everything John Newton did and what happened to John Newton. But in those days, they often did. In other words, Isaac, who we learned about in Sunday school today, children, what does Isaac mean? He laughs. Thank you. Because God gets the last laugh. You think this is impossible. You just wait and see. I know you're elderly. You just wait and see. Sarah laughs about it. <clears throat> no way God can do that. You were laughing in the tent. No, I wasn't. Yes, you were. Can you imagine when that baby came? Laughter. The people of God will laugh one day. Peter, you're not a rock now, but you will be. Church in Philadelphia, I know you don't feel like you're the people of God, but you are. And one day, listen to how he says it. This is unbelievable. Again, he goes back to Jesus in chapter 1, and he goes forward to the new heavens and the new earth. The name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. He's saying that's going to be true of those who keep keeping on. Who conquer. I have done a lot of weddings over the years. And maybe the most glorious wedding that I ever did was of this couple, Brian and Carissa. Carissa was this itty bitty little girl. 
just tiny. And we went to the wedding, all that good stuff, and I'm standing up front, and Brian and all the guys come down front, and they're standing there. And then it was just something about the light in that church, and it was something about the sun at that moment. When they opened those doors, I'm telling you, every bride is beautiful. Every bride is beautiful. And she's standing there in her dress, beautiful, shining white, and it's like the light just came down on her, and she truly radiated that light. And that is exactly what God is saying about our church. He's saying, one day, some day, at the end, you are going to come down out of heaven as a bride gloriously prepared for your husband, Jesus. That is our future. Let's pray. God, thank you for this beautiful security that we have. And I pray that as we grow in the gospel, in your love for us, God, that we would need less and less and less the love that is offered outside of Christ. And that it would so work in our hearts that we would, we would walk through open doors that you open for ministry to others secure eternally, secure forever. In Christ's name, amen.